Thank you, Bill. I didn't know what to do with you either. <laughs> so we're even. Thank you, Dan. I'm awful glad I didn't drink the way you did. <laughs> I was always an alcoholic, but I didn't become obnoxious. <laughs> In my opinion. My name is Jerry, and I'm a very grateful alcoholic. By the grace of God, I ran into AA a long time ago. I didn't want to come to AA. I belong to the intelligentsia. And my alleged brains almost kept me in a nut factory. I came of a different era than most of you, but I think the young people can probably identify better than the middle age, shall we say. Uh, just so you won't have to guess how long I've been around, I'm 75 years young and still working a 14-hour day, seven days a week, because I want to, to help with alcoholics, and I am grateful for having been allowed the chance to be the channel. God gave this to me, and he says, Not yet, no rest for you, kid. <laughs> so I keep on like the Salvation Army beating the old drum every single day. I came of an era when drugs were just coming on the market, Phenobarbital was going to cure all the ills of the nation. I was a very nervous child, and they gave me phenobarbital. Right now, they would call me hyperkinetic, but they didn't have nice words like that, and they called me an ornery little brat. <laughs> and I, I think that probably was better. I think that was quite appropriate. But they decided at 17, when they found this wonderful new uh, thing, it was sort of like vitamins, you know. You carried it around in your pocket and you threw it a couple in case you got nervous. <laughs> that they'd give me some of that. And it didn't do too much. My mother apparently thought it did something that was good. But you see, nice girls didn't drink in my time. And I wanted to be nice. I wanted to be popular too, my friends. And the in thing to do then was to run booze across the Canadian border. <laughs> now I had a rather unique way of carrying it. We carried it in hot water bottles slung between our legs. If you're considering doing that, put cotton pants on so they won't squeak. <laughs> and with two quarts of Canadian whiskey in the bootleg days, <coughs> honey, I was popular.
I came out of college a professional. I'm not sure professional in what. But I went to work with the doctors. And that was a nice choice. Because we could buy a little straight alcohol, you know, in those tins that you couldn't see. And I was able to buy a gallon of alcohol every once in a while. Now that's two gallons of the strength you drink now. And I took that to a party and I was very popular also. But one night they persuaded me to have a drink of what they made out of this, which they called bathtub gin. Now bathtub gin is cut with a little water, alcohol cut with a little water, a little juniper berry. You age it 15 minutes <laughs> and drink it in hard cider. And on top of a little phenobibitol, you take off. Woo! <laughs> And they persuaded me to try some of this concoction, and I did, and I never wanted to be nice again, and I never was. <laughs> My entire life was spent figuring out where I was going to get the next drink without getting caught. Because you see, no one must know nice girls didn't drink but that first drink made me tall it made me beautiful I've never been so beautiful since I didn't have any buck teeth I didn't have a crooked nose I didn't have crooked ears oh I was divine and I liked what it did for me now in those days money was short very short and we didn't weren't able to get alcohol all the time but I had access to these other little gizmos. They were coming on the market um, very rapidly, and the doctors had a little saying, we, we'll try the new medications on Jerry, and if it doesn't kill her, it won't hurt the patients. <laughs> it almost killed me a little later because I never kept anything pure, never keep anything pure, always mix it up. Along the way I had some difficulty by the way I was stationed for five years at the Mayo Clinic and I saw psychiatrists all over the country about my problems with my family now let me tell you something if psychiatry had cost me anything I wouldn't have seen them but they were always glad to see me because I wielded a little influence even in those days and they were very uh, courteous to me, and they were always ready to see me and hand it out. And actually, I know now what I was doing was covering my hindsight in case I got too drunk, I could get in the hospital with depression. <laughs> now, you know what depression is? Depression is unresolved discontent, and I was too damn lazy to resolve my problems. <laughs> so I went to them, and I always had a backup. But I had another very grave problem. I had a brother who drank too much, and he was a moral leper. Imagine anybody drinking too much. <laughs> Why, he was an educated man, and he had a family, and he overspent his budget, and he neglected his family. And do you know what? He got in jail one time for leaving the scene of an accident.
terrible, terrible person. He was a moral leper. Now, I was full of denial. And of course, I never neglected my family. I didn't have a family to neglect. I'd divorced one husband before that. (laughs) I didn't overspend my budget because I traveled on an unlimited expense account and I was the auditor. (laughs) And it made some of my cheating friends look like pink tea. Now, I used to use a man's name in connection with that who did a little cheating at a government level. But I've had to drop that because I have his son now. (laughs) Saints be praised, my sins catch up with me. And I didn't get in jail. But you know how you look out the window in the morning to see if your car's there? I did one morning. The car was there, but one side of it was gone. And I never did know where I left it. <laughs> but uh, So you see, I might have been having a little problem, but my brother's problem just got out of hand, and so I called a child psychiatrist that I knew in the East where he lived, and I always thought calling a child psychiatrist was very appropriate and asked him what to do with that moral leper brother of mine who drank too much. And he said, you know, I don't know, Jerry. Say, now, wait a minute. I went to a meeting in New York the other night, and there was a guy there by the name of Bill Wilson. And he and some men are doing something peculiar with men who drink too much. Not women who drink too much, men who drink too much. He said, I'll call him up for you, and I'll call you back. And he called Bill, and thanks be to God, Bill and two of his eager beavers went out to see my brother Oscar. And nearly 42 years ago, he came successfully into AA and never found it necessary to drink again and never found it necessary to stop going to AA or having AA friends. Now, he took me to AA meetings as when I visited in the East, and it was a nice little group for you folks. <laughs> Real cute. Uh, why, one night at an anniversary, they had a cake about that big in the shape of a bottle and had three feathers sticking out of it. Oh, wasn't that cute? <laughs> But I had no relation to me. You see, the psychiatrists by that time were telling me that I was outrageously overworked and underpaid. As a matter of fact, the head neuropsychiatrist at the Mayo Clinic treated me intensively for three months and assured me at the end, Jerry, you are not an alcoholic. You just work too hard, and you're underpaid. And I was the best-paid woman in the United States at that time. Do you know something? He died a couple of years ago at 82. And just before he died, he wrote me the same thing, that I wasn't an alcoholic. And after having tried in numerous letters over the years to explain to him what an alcoholic was and so forth and so on, I wrote him back a letter Well, if I'm not an alcoholic, I'll do until one comes along. (laughs) I gave up on trying to sell him 
The only person I need to sell, my friends, is me, and I better sell me right up to the hilt. The day I forget, I'm in real trouble. They say there is a level below which the God of my understanding will not let us go. And though I was unconscious for 10 days from an overdose at one time, and they told me I almost died, I was drunk two hours after I got out of the hospital. The last year was horrendous. The last five years were pretty iffy. But I was afraid to lose my job, and so I worked very hard. But I planned my drunks so I could drink a few days at a time. And all I did was go into oblivion. I didn't have any fun. I can't tell you in the early days that I didn't have fun because in the roaring twenties I roared <laughs> loud. And I had a good time. But it come to a place where life was very difficult for me. Very difficult. And that being unconscious didn't bother me that much. But one morning I woke up, and I don't know whether any of you have ever done this or not, but I looked up to see if it was my ceiling. And you know, you usually look to see if anybody was with you. <laughs> Nobody was with me, but it wasn't my ceiling. <laughs> and my house did not have bars on the window nor did it have the little peephole in the door and no doorknobs on the inside. As Ray O'Keefe says, a sloppy architect. <laughs> I knew right away with my great intelligent mind I was in a nut house, and that's right where I was. And I was locked up. And for the first time, something happened. It was a miracle to me. My brother had been called on many occasions to help me, and he'd never come. And I said an honest prayer, at least honest at that second. If I ever get out of here, I'm going to call my brother and ask him if he'll help me. I had met Lois and Bill both many, many times. They would spend a weekend while I was out there trying to be an example to me, but it went right over my head. But I knew that I had to do something. And the first miracle is that 20 minutes later, my brother stepped out of that elevator in that nut house in Chicago. And he said something to me, and if you ever have your relatives, I urge you to use the same approach. He said, honey, you've made a pretty lousy mess out of your life. Do you want to do something about it? Well, I did want to do something about it, but I didn't want to follow that holy roller. <laughs> Why, they were praying all the time at those meetings. By this time, I had completely rejected the God of my understanding. But that day seemed to be different. And when he said to me, do you want to do something about it? I did. Not him. He said, I cannot help you because I love you too much to be objective. But I will get somebody. 
Now, in New Jersey at that time, there were two other women, and it was a nice little men's club, and they didn't want women. And I'm eternally grateful to the non-alcoholic women, wives always at that time, who went to the meetings and would let me sit with them because the women sat on one side of the room and the men on the other. Women, men, here we are. Same way. And never the twain shall meet. And there was none of this hanky-panky that sometimes goes on. And that's just as well. But I am grateful tonight to those women who were so good to me and who always came with their husbands to pick me up and they took me to meetings. And as I say, there were only two women. And the first woman that came to call on me had only been sober two months. And Helen came and she, Oscar had told her what a brilliant sister he had. And here comes this apparition down the stairs, barely able to walk, hair stringing down over her face, eyes crossed, couldn't finish a sentence. She went home and said to her husband, this is the first time I've ever been asked to see somebody. Why did they send me to see somebody hopeless? <laughs> the two of us recently celebrated 35 years apiece. They started taking me to meetings and they didn't say, dear, would you like to go to a meeting? They jerked me out of bed and they say, come on, we're going to meetings. And I'm awful glad they didn't tell me then that they didn't care. They told me they did care, and this is the way you did it. And they insisted that I do it that way, that I go to meetings and listen with an open mind. And one of the men suggested that I put one hand up around one ear so it didn't go on through. <laughs> I was terribly flaky because I'd had large amounts of alcohol because I would take a handful of phenobarbital, eight to ten secanol, a quart of whiskey to start my social drinking. <laughs> and it was pretty rough coming off of that cold turkey. But I didn't know to, enough to eat right. I'm a nutritionist by trade. <laughs> But I was a little bit squirrely, and so somebody told me if I got nervous to eat a piece of chocolate. So I ate three pounds a day. <laughs> and I went, I went from 104 to 184 and nothing flat, and I looked like a nursing mother. <laughs> and I didn't like me any better that way. And I was terribly nervous. Little and by degrees, and it took me nearly a year for me to stop having the blackouts. Yes, I walked, I talked, I heard, but I had no recall on anything. And this is why we go to meetings. And we didn't just go to a single meeting, we went to a meeting every night in the week all over the state of New Jersey and New York and Pennsylvania. Gas was tight, but we went four or five in a car, and the cars didn't go as fast as they did now. They didn't let me talk, Dan. They let you talk, but they told me to shut up. <laughs> there was a little sawed-off sergeant from Fort Monmouth 
that was a head shorter than I was, that every time I opened my mouth, he said, shut up. <laughs> and I, when I heard Sandy Beach say what the first three steps of AA had been to him, that fit me exactly. Get in the car, sit over there, shut up with the first three steps. <laughs> One day I got very bold and said to little sergeant, I thought you could do AA any way you wanted to. Now remember, he's a head shorter than I was. He looked down his nose at me and said, You don't have a way. And he was right. My way got me drunk. So I had to look at you and try your way. And I said to somebody the other day, they said, how do you know this way is right? I said, I don't, but I'll tell you what. You stay sober a day at a time and go to meetings for 35 years and come back and tell me what's wrong with it. <laughs> do I still go to AA? You better believe I still go to AA. Why do I go to AA? Because I need you. You don't need me, but I need you very badly. As we grow older, we have different problems. But you know I have yet to go to an AA meeting that I didn't come away feeling better. I may not help anybody else at an AA meeting except one person I help me. And I believe the God of my understanding is in this room and I think he came to me in this room just as he did that night in the hospital he has saved me many times I said I didn't believe in God and one of the old timers said well if you know another three letter word um, that uh, will tell us all what you're talking about we'll use that you know, I've never found another three-letter word that would describe it. And then came a time I'd been sober about seven or eight months. And I thought, oh, this is a lot of hogwash. I'll go back to Chicago and drink with my friends like a lady. I never wanted to be anything but a lady. And I went home that night with a firm resolve. Now, I was living in my brother's house where my sister-in-law didn't like me that well. I didn't understand why, but it seems that I did support them for five years while he was drinking, but I made him pay through the nose for every penny, emotionally. I didn't realize I was doing that, but I did do it and she didn't like me. And I wanted out of that house, and I was sitting on the edge of the bed, and on my 40th birthday I received an AA book. Now, I read that book, and it was very poorly written. <laughs> Any idiot could write a book better than that, but this idiot's never been able to come close. <laughs> and that night, that book, that peculiar book, because it had legs, I threw it in the garbage. It came back greasy. I threw it in the dirty laundry, and it came back from the laundry. I threw it out the window and it came back from a snowbank. Very peculiar book. 
I picked it up that night. These are the miracles to me. And it fell open to page 57, the chapter on how it works that you've heard tonight. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. And I was following the path of destruction, and I knew it. And I went on, and those words honest in that paragraph were an inch high, and it was very obnoxious. And then I went down to the steps, and for some reason or other, I transposed those steps from the we, which meant you, to I admit that I am powerless over alcohol and that my life is unmanageable. I went through it that way, and at the end of the 12 steps, I closed the book, laid down on that bed, and never have wanted to leave AA since. And I am so grateful because God was there with me. Has life been a bowl of cherries? I have been extremely successful by some standards. I have had success with my maintaining sobriety, which has given me all I have. After two years, I want you to know I had softening in the brain because I married an Irishman, Dan. <laughs> I'm really not Irish. And I loved him the day I married him, and I loved him the day he died, and in between I could have stuck a knife through him and turned it around and watched him to bleed to death a hundred times and stood there and watched it and said, Hooray! <laughs> and I'm sure he felt the same way about me. He had come into AA a little after I did, and we did not handle our AA program alike. We did not think alike, and we had to learn that he had to work with his and I had to work with mine. And we did this for a long time, and he was intergroup chairman and banquet chairman and all sorts of things. And I don't know what happened except that Tom got bored someplace along the line and said to me, I don't know how you can stand these drunks all the time. And you are my people. I am comfortable with you. You're the same kind of people I like to drink with. You gave me back my life. You restored my belief in the God of my understanding. And I couldn't understand this. And he didn't want to go to meetings, and I had to go to more while he did this. And unfortunately, one of his friends gave him, and I say that friends, very lightly, gave him muscle relaxants for his back, which was hurting. Now, Tom was a very tough Irishman. He owned a construction company. He was very successful. He had everything going for him. And he took the muscle relaxants. The man said, don't tear old Jerry. She said, not on those things. And it helped his back. And then he gave him a little cough medicine for his cough. And in three weeks, he was drunk. He was never to recover, except for a few days at a time. Everybody tried, and the most humbling thing I ever had in my life was to have to turn him over to other people. But thanks be to God, 
I had learned my lesson well enough to know that I couldn't do it from my brother who said he couldn't help me. That long before, Tom had been sober 20 years and I'd been sober 22. And this was a horrible, horrible thing to watch him die by inches, cry, and then drink again. Thanks be to God, I did not find it necessary to drink myself because I know that as long as I live, I will have the disease of alcoholism. There is no cure, but how grateful I am that it's the kind of a disease that you can put the cork in the bottle, big and little, and go to meetings and steal my prescription for staying sober is what they said to me. The three D's, don't drink, dummy, and go to meetings. <laughs> and that is all they said to me. Don't drink, dummy, and go to meetings. And I hear it still, and I go to meetings. And I do something else. One of the great hazards is the fact that we may forget and get an unrealistic self-image. You know, as you go along, a lot of flattery comes your way and look out for it. It's very strong medicine. People may feel that way, but be sure you don't take it whole hog. You'll choke to death on a tablespoonful of flattery little taste off the end of that tablespoon might be all right, might be all right, but be very careful. You might just get into trouble. So once a year on my vacation, I take a full-scale written inventory. How have you done this year with your assets and your liabilities? And you know, I used to think I could get rid of all my personality problems if I worked at AA hard enough. You know, they remind me a little of dandelions. You know, you dig out a dandelion and you dig and you dig and you think you've got the roots, and all of a sudden, up it comes. Two inches high already. I've settled with my character problems of keeping them cut close to the ground and keeping after them. And I have a sponsor. Most of my old sponsors have died. When you live this long, it gets to be a problem. <laughs> but I have a gal out on the West Coast, and I talk to her once or twice a week in California. Somebody says, isn't that awful expensive? I said, not as expensive as my last drunk. That was... So I have to keep sorting out my attitudes. Um, one of my problems that I have is projecting. What if? What if? And as you get older, you say, what if I don't wake up? And I'm grateful to just wake up in the morning. I don't have to have a whole lot to be grateful for. I say, whoo, it's another day I waked up. <laughs> and I'm sober. And I've got friends like you. What have I got to worry about? But somebody told me a story about projecting the other day that I think might keep you from projecting another day. 
as me. I don't know whether you know about Mary and Henry that were going to get in touch with each other. Whoever died first was to get in touch with the other one through a medium or whatever. And um, Henry died and Mary didn't hear from him and she didn't hear from him and she didn't hear from him. So she went to a medium and finally the medium got in touch with Henry. She said, oh, Henry, how is it out there? Oh, he said, it's terrible, just awful. I'm so dead tired, I can hardly stand it. There's nothing but sex, 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 morning, noon, and night sex. She gets a plaintive note in her voice. She said, oh, Henry, I didn't know they allowed so much sex in heaven. He says, heaven, hell, I'm a jackrabbit in Kalamazoo. <laughs> so don't project it and pinpoint your faults. In winding up, I want you to know that the most important thing that I have gotten out of AA and I've gotten it from people just like you, and you all look just the same as everybody does down in New Jersey. Come on down and see us. We got a lot of drunks down there, too. Some out, some in. <laughs> They're getting younger, and that's a, a difficulty, but we have a lot of, of good AA. And I have gotten faith. I had a terrible time with faith. I had a terrible time with definitions. And I found that if you use Mr. Webster's short stories, it helps a lot. <laughs> and if you get a dictionary with large print, uh, that'll help too. Because then you'll stop and read it. You might get a Bible with large print too that'll stop and help you read that. Just a passage a day will change your thinking. Just one little paragraph or less. And I developed the kind of a faith I had as a child. You know, when you were a child and you prayed for a bicycle and you got roller skates, it took you about 30 seconds to make up your mind you wanted roller skates to begin with. <laughs> you better do that with your life. Whatever you get, honey, you better make up your mind about 30 seconds is right because God's behind it. And you can develop your faith. And if you keep trying and go to the places where you find faith and see faith in action, right here in this room, you see faith in action. And say when you've made a mistake and don't be so proud that you won't ask for help. You folks that are married, give your spouse a little pat on the back once in a while. Tell them you love them. I had a man say, well, she ought to know I love her. I wouldn't have stayed with her this long. <laughs> I said, try telling her. And if he gives you a good automobile ride, tell him. We forget to tell those closest to us that they're doing well. Faith is the most important thing to you. Faith that today you can do it. Today, things will be right. They may be tough. It may be hard to do. It may not be what you plan. It may not be what you want. But the thing is, it's right. 
And if you keep trying, the Lord doesn't call upon us to succeed. He says, try. And if you've really tried your best to live by your standards, the standards of living that you've set for yourself, that you have picked from other people that you admire, then you have succeeded and will succeed longer. I am very grateful to you folks up here for allowing me to come back up in Minnesota. I've spent the days thinking about when I was in Rochester and the things that I should have done and wish I had, had not done. But being mostly grateful that I was allowed to live and that I am a channel now in the work I'm doing for those less fortunate. And I can't live by my feelings now. I must live by faith. And so I'd like to close with something that helps me. And I keep things in my mirror to remind me every day because I don't want to forget. I want to remember, Lord, keep my memory green. When everything is pleasant and bright and things we turn out are just right, we feel without question that God is real. For when we are happy, how good we feel. But when the tides turn and gone is the song and misfortune comes and plans go wrong, doubt creeps in and we start to wonder and our thoughts about God are torn asunder. For we feel deserted in times of deep stress without God's presence to assure us and bless. And it is then when our senses are reeling, we realize clearly it's faith and not feeling. For it takes great faith to patiently wait, believing that God comes not too soon nor too late. And each night I have a habit and I like it this way, of asking God to take my hand. It's better this way, I know, because if I take his instead of his taking mine, I might get afraid and let go. God bless you, and may you always be as happy as you are tonight and have all that I have tonight. That is my fondest wish for everyone in this room. God bless you.